Welcome to ABC, Abergavenny Baptist Church, building faith and friendship. On this first Sunday of a new year, we celebrate Epiphany, the coming of the wise men. No, that's sexist. Doesn't say that. Your worship sheet has it right, the Magi. And we will refer to them as the Magi. If by some chance I say wise men during the sermon, you'll realize I really mean Magi. Because that's the word that the Bible uses in the Greek. Because there's a certain mystery about them. We don't know too much about where they come from, who they were. All we know is what they did on this one occasion, coming from the east to Jerusalem, seeking a king. But they represent a very important class of people, for they are people with feet in more than one camp. We like to put people into boxes, categorize them and say, oh, he's that, she's this. But the Magi, they refuse to be categorized. They are mysterious. They're part one thing, part another. They represent power. Traditionally, they've been called kings. And yet they come to worship a baby. They come with the richest of gifts. And they come to a child who is in the poorest of circumstances. They themselves are symbols of security and position. But they're willing to take a great risk in traveling goodness knows how many miles to achieve their purpose. They are those who might appear to have everything and could quite happily have rested and said, we are content with what we have, and yet no. They had to go and search for something because they knew that although they had much of this world's wealth, there was much more that they wanted to know and experience. And they were driven men. Men. I'm off if I can. They were driven people to go and satisfy that longing. You see, they understood the limits to human understanding and wanted to reach out beyond the rational, explore what faith was all about. They were students of science, but they recognized science had its limits. And they wanted to explore the realm of faith. Now, science is wonderful. We live in an age which depends more and more on technology. I wonder what you've been given for Christmas that relied upon some electronic gizmo. New phone, new iPad, new computer. Goodness knows what you might have had. And so much, if you go back a hundred years and imagine something, some ancestor of yours came back and you had to start explaining what everybody was doing around, I mean I sat around our room with a family the other day and they're all sitting there dum, 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 bum, 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 all engrossed in different forms of electronic gizmos they would just see it wouldn't they as miracle piled on miracle those home comforts which you take for granted the home's warm, but there's not a fire in sight. How's that done? Come on. Now. 
Explain that to me. You switch on the TV. How did you do that? You didn't move. <laughs> and it just appeared. That phone rang. You didn't get up to answer it. It's there. And all the other things that we take for granted. Some of us rely upon pills to keep us going. Medicinal, legitimate, prescribed drugs. But again, a miracle of modern medicine. We can play music, we can download what we want. And so it could go on. So much we take for granted because of the developments of science in the last century. And many would say, well, of course, science has all the answers. Well, of course, it doesn't. Far better equipped to ask the questions about how and then conduct experiments in order to answer the questions, but as to why, what's the meaning of it all, as to what is truly important, we can't do that. We can't predict the future either. Since the 1500s, perhaps, each new century has brought surprise upon surprise. And I'll illustrate this by saying, in 1894, at the end of the 19th century, distinguished physicists, a German scientist said, the more important fundamental laws and facts of physical science have all been discovered. 1894, such self-confidence. And in 1900, the British Association of Advancement of Science, Lord Kelvin, a very distinguished scientist, of course, gives his name to the degrees Kelvin, said much the same thing. It's all known. We just got to dot some I's and cross a few T's. And what did we see in the 20th century? A whole explosion of things, literally, of course, leading to the atomic bomb. But the whole realm of nuclear physics, of course. The mysteries of out there, we discovered black holes, an expanding universe, and much more. In other words, knowledge, we might have a lot of knowledge, but it doesn't help us to see just round the corner. Things might happen that we just cannot expect or predict. And I think the Magi, they represent that sort of person. The one who realizes that there's more to understanding, there's more to life than we can ever theorize about, rationalize, discuss. Tradition has it, of course, that there were three wise men. There's a tradition, of course, Melchior, Caspar, and Balthasar. That they were kings and they bought gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, you know all that. But there could have been any number of them. There were sorcerers, astrologers, perhaps. From some country in the east we don't know, Yemen's a favorite, but it could be anywhere. And then they come eventually guided, as they say, by a star, they arrive at Jerusalem. And they ask for directions, which suggests that at least one of them was a lady. I mean, who ever heard of men asking for directions? But they come to Jerusalem, thinking naturally that if they were seeking a king in one of these western countries, and who are more religious than the Jews, and what's more religious city than Jerusalem, that here they would find the answer. And of course, they're directed elsewhere. Why they arrived? Because they were astrologers, astronomers. They looked to the skies, they saw the stars, they 
read them and saw significance in, we don't know what, some conjunction of the planets, possibly. And they read meaning into that and significance, that this was something special. But because of what they'd seen, they were willing to make this difficult journey. Take with them these precious gifts. So it costs time, effort, money to do all this. And then they find what they're looking for in the most unexpected place. Not in Jerusalem, for they were sent on to Bethlehem. Those in Jerusalem, yes, could direct them because they can say, point back to a prophecy which was 700 years old then about the role that Bethlehem would play. And it was enough for the Magi to respond and said, yes, well, if that prophecy says Bethlehem, we will go. But it didn't affect the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They stayed put. They were self-satisfied. They knew it all. Oh, yes, there, there is a prophecy, but it's 700 years old now. Really, you know, can't expect that to be fulfilled in our day. So they stayed put, unconcerned, unresponsive. But one man was responsive, wasn't he? King Herod. He was king. And they talked of another king. And like tyrants old and new, he was going to respond in the one way that eternal tyrants do. After all, he'd only got where he was and stayed where he was by killing off members of his family even, any rival to the throne. And so with murderous intent, he says to the Magi, yes, well, if you find a king, come back and let me know that I might go as well. So there are many questions raised by this simple account. Only Matthew, for instance, knows this story. Nowhere else in New Testament is there any reference to the Magi. It makes, yes, a fabulous beginning to the life of Jesus. And if I use that, you can take it in a colloquial way because there are those who say it's nothing more than just a fable. But Matthew included it because, yes, he believed it was true. It makes a good start for his gospel because he wants us to see that wider horizon. It opens our eyes to other possibilities. Matthew, as he starts his gospel with these Gentiles, and he ends his gospel with the wider horizon that Jesus presented to his disciples. At the end of his gospel, we have Matthew recording the words of Jesus, which were, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, Jesus might have been a Jew. He might have been born in Bethlehem, a Jewish town. He might be fulfilling Jewish prophecy. But this first revelation is to those who are Gentile. And at the end of the gospel... The disciples are told to go out into that Gentile world and preach the gospel. Jesus is for the whole world. He's for you. He's for me. Not just for the Jews. And when Jesus cured the centurion's servant, the centurion, of course, a Roman, a Gentile, not only commended his faith because this centurion believed in Jesus, He said it's greater faith than anything he'd seen in Israel. And he went on to say to Jesus that many will come from east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus himself said he had come to preach. 
the gospel for the world. Not just the Jews. He might have been a Jew himself. Might have spent all his life among Jews. There was always this wider horizon wanting us too to open our eyes to the possibility of the gospel going to other places, to other people. So it's the gospel of Jesus is where Jew and Gentile meet. That's the significance of the Magi coming into Jerusalem and into Bethlehem to meet with Jesus. The irreconcilable, those who are seen to be outside the love of God, showing us that God was there and, yes, was including them, including us, in his plan. And it was Paul who would say, there is no division. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, Roman or Greek, male or female. So the Magi, you see, are a great simple symbol of reconciliation. The great divisions that are in this world are crossed over. The great division between Jew and Gentile, which was, for the Jew, absolutely irreconcilable. There was nothing you could do about it if you were born outside Judaism. We see here that God's plan is bigger, wider than anything that anybody imagined in Jerusalem. And if we live in a divided world, a world which needs reconciliation more than anything else, let's take this lesson of the Magi as a start. If we say we love Jesus, if you say, yes, I believe in Jesus, we too need to know that same spirit of reconciliation and be that to the world. Fortnight's time we'll be celebrating a week of prayer for Christian unity. We do it every year. But how much does it really mean? How much do we earnestly seek unity across the Christian spectrum? A lot's happened in my lifetime, but I remember going to a great rally back in the 1960s, way before your time. Great spirit of optimism. Churches from all sorts of different denominations are represented. And I, as an idealistic student, thought, yes, this is the future. This is where we're going. Well, we've made some progress. <laughs> but we're not there yet, are we? There's still a great deal that divide. And yet, yes, we do come together. And thank God for that. But there's so much more, I believe, that needs to be done. Relationships between the Christian churches, they're still progress to be made. But what about the bigger question? The three great religions that worship the one God. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Now we're talking. Should we be trying to reconcile? Come together? Take those things which we agree on as a starting point? As opposed to the world outside which denies there is a God or would worship a multiplicity of gods, of we who believe in the one God. How far should we go on that journey? Well, let's take some more obvious places where there is division. 
division between East and West, rich and poor. And so we could go on. The Magi challenges us to consider the world in which we live, a divided world, and how do we play our part in seeking to reconcile what is the irreconcilable. And the Magi, I hope, because we can't categorize them, because they are mysterious, we can't say they came from such and such a country and therefore allow our prejudice against that country to speak through us. I mean, if we call them Iraqis, you know, and immediately, oh! <laughs> or if we call them Arabs, oh my goodness me. Or if we call them some Pacific title. Now they just come from the East. They're nice and anonymous. And as for the faith, well, we don't know exactly what that was either. We know they read the stars and believed because of what they'd seen, but we don't know exactly what the nature of their faith was. All we know is that when they saw Jesus, they saw something of the true nature of God and his wondrous workings, and they brought gifts accordingly. They responded in faith to what they see. They took the work of the moment and reacted. You might say, well, that's a very pragmatic approach. Yes, they were. They were pragmatists. And I've always been on the side of pragmatists. Those who say, well, we've got to take the world as it is. And what's important is how we react to that. And let's put aside some of the, the niceties of doctrine or distinct beliefs. Let's not argue too much about that. Let's respond accordingly to what is faced in front of us. We might see them as people who were too concerned with calculating progress of planets across the sky and the mysterious ways in which they were able to make sense of what for most of us is just points of light. Deep as their understanding might have been, they realized there was much more that they needed to understand. Yes, in some ways they were naive. They took Herod, for instance, on trust, although warned later not to go back. But in their desire to pay homage to Jesus, they showed the true depth of their wisdom. And all this, you see, is, in a sense, a mystery, isn't it? Who were they? Why did they come? What were they doing? Where did they go? Why don't we hear more about them? But what we do know is they help us to disclose who Jesus was. As Paul writes to the church at Colossae, the mystery, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, it is now disclosed by the saints. The mystery of how God will act through a Messiah. One who will be God with us. And to them, says Paul, God has chosen to make known to the Gentiles the glorious mystery, which is Christ in you. Christ in me. That's the biggest mystery of all. Not just why Jesus came, why he comes for you, he comes for me. God continues to reveal something of his love through different ways, through different ages, through different people, through different circumstances. 
And so at this beginning of a new year, 2040, we can look back from where we have come from and thank God for the ways in which he has shown his love, his care to us. Look forward in confidence to all that he is going to do through you, through me, and to understand that we have still much to learn. To learn about the world, to learn about ourselves, to learn how to share that love that we have known with a needy world. To believe that the coming of Jesus did make a difference and that the presence of Jesus now can make a difference to your life, to my life, to this world in which we live. A world in which, yes, there will be much that will surprise us. Ready to be surprised. It's ready perhaps to go out in faith and surprise yourself. But in all things, to believe that God is there. That is his world. And he wants you to understand something of it for your own lives, for those whom you love. Amen.